Hello, and welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about The Matrix Reloaded. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? On this podcast, we like to talk about games. Um, the good news is, The Matrix Reloaded is a 15-year-old movie. The bad news is, I feel like it's impossible to talk about this movie without spoilers. Um, so, do you want to just get into it as quickly well, as quickly as we can? Sure. A uh, um, couple of things at the top. One, sure. we're fast approaching our 300th episode. I believe this is That's 298. True. or two, Yeah, this is 298. Um, we will have time, because I cannot count... Um, in between two, uh, episode 300 to do it on schedule. So send your questions into some service at gmail.com or podcasts at some service Ask us anything. We have a tradition of going as long as it takes to, uh, to, to <laughs> record all of the questions. Um, also, you know, I suppose if you jump in live while it's happening, we'll answer questions while that's happening too. That's uh, true. I didn't actually think about that, but yeah. that is actually accurate. Yeah. This is the first time we're, uh, we're, we're, we'll be streaming it live um, just because we started streaming at the beginning of this year. And we do, you know, every hundred episodes comes about every two years. Um, and, you know, so, you know, send in your questions. We'd love to, to answer them. Also, feel free to send in your questions anytime. But, like, this is kind of like our, the traditional gathering spot. Um, yep. Other thing. What, so last, epi- last episode, I revealed that. Uh, Reloaded is my favorite of the three movies. Um, after this watching, that position is less strong, but I still hold to it. Um, Ooh, okay, all right. Um, so last time I watched the three movies, I had like a migraine and I think a fever. And so I literally think I was watching the Reloaded in a fever dream. Um, <laughs> um, but I still like it better than the first one. Um, and I'm pretty sure I like it better than the third one. But, um, buddy... What is your kind of like top level impression before we get into spoilers? Yeah, my top level impression is that Reloaded is both better than I remembered, and I think, honestly, maybe even I I want to say it is better than the original Matrix, like in a in a completely different vein and on a on a different track. Things that the original Matrix does well, I think Reloaded kind of fails at, but things that the original Matrix kind of kinds of leaves behind. Um, reloaded picks up in a way that I was like, I found it incredibly compelling. But the most, but the thing that I kind of didn't realize is just how captivating the cinematography, the editing, um, and just like the raw moment to moment, shot by shot action was. I, I, I talked about how in the original, when I was watching the original Matrix, I kept having my focus pulled, right? Where, you know, and this is something that, that that happens to me with other movies, right? Like if a movie has a good action scene that is gripping, even if I'm playing WoW or playing Hearthstone or whatever, you know, just like doing something on my other screen, right? I will do that thing where I just kind of sit back for a minute and just kind of watch the action as it plays out, and that was happening to me for for the Matrix, but that happened to me constantly in Reloaded, and to a point where I was just like. Man, I like I should just fucking log out. I'm sitting here like AFK basically, right? Like um because uh because I just I just found it as so, you know so compelling. Um I think the Matrix Reloaded is built to appeal to someone like me in the same way that Batman for Superman is, um, where it has a lot of mistakes and it has a lot of like obvious kind of dumb mistakes in a way that I think um you know sort of uh 
if you're the kind of person that makes like nitpicky YouTube videos or you really like that sort of that, you know, this is a movie that pisses you off. Right. And I understand why it has the reputation that it has, but I was honestly pretty floored by how much I enjoyed just watching the, the matrix reloaded. It is pretty much definitely my fave. I do like revolutions probably more than most people, but I always thought it was the worst one. And, uh, I don't expect that to change, but who knows? Maybe I'll come in here next week and, like, evangelize for The Matrix Revolutions. All right. So I think this is a good point to launch to our main content, spoilers, whatever, because I think this is going to hit on, on two big things I thought about while watching this movie. One, I think this movie, as compared to the original Matrix, is kind of a good poster child for the, thing, the things that we've talked about when we talk about this nitpicky stuff, right? Like... If you fall on the side of liking the movie, the stuff that doesn't make sense falls away. And if you mm -hmm. fall on the side of not liking the movie, all the things that don't make sense um, kind of like are held in stark relief. And that's the effective big difference between, I think, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix is more people fell on the side of this is very cool. I will ignore everything that doesn't make sense. Um, whereas more people fall on the like, why is, why is the Frenchman talking about orgasm cakes? None of this makes any sense. Um, even though I think... Both of them, if you think about them too hard, make absolutely no sense. And this is my big hot take. I don't think anything the Wachowskis have made makes any sense if you think about them oh, too hard. Really? I, I felt – I think I would have agreed with you. But for some reason, I just really keyed into this through line. You know, so one of the things no, no. that I found frustrating about the original – and this is still spoiler-free talk, right? But I found frustrating when I remember watching The Matrix Reloaded originally was I felt like the movie dipped into these diatribes of philosophical jargon. And I was just like, what the fuck does this have to do, right? Move the plot forward, right? I, I think we could be Keep in going. spoiler I, section I, if you want to talk about spoilers. No, no, no. Sure, sure, sure. Right. Okay. But the thing that I didn't realize about Reloaded is um, in a modern context, maybe in just a context where I understand more about the, the, the construction of the Matrix or I'm I'm keyed into the lore better. Right. Um, all of those conversations had a through line. Right. And they had um, and they really hung together well. And you I could you could see and I could really feel how sort of. You know, the conversation with the Oracle is setting up one thing, and the conversation with the Merovingian is commenting on that thing or whatever, right? Um, and how all of those sort of, you know, dialogue th – there's, there's almost these dialogues happening between different characters who are talking about things, right, um, that lead up until a climactic conclusion. And I just – I was like, this – that's fantastic. This is awesome, right? Um, which is something that I don't know that I've ever felt while watching The Matrix Reloaded before. So I, I think I agree, and I think this is this kind of goes back to my point. I think the Wachowskis are very good at very strong theming and having good mm. thematic arcs and having the themes really sing in their movies. I think they are terrible at making the moment-to-moment -moment action make any sense. If you, if you look at it under – I'm not even going to say a microscope – under like – a like mild magnifying glass, like through corrective lenses, <laughs> right? Like, like yeah. okay. if if you ask me for any for, to like like I could point out inconsistencies in like the world of the Matrix, like that, right? Like we talked about this a little bit last time, right? Like, oh, okay, yeah, I do agree with you there. Um, um, yeah, the the thing I was thinking of is at first I thought that all of those conversations didn't hang together either, right? And they were superfluous, and I was like, whatever, this is dumb. But I don't know, revisiting, I I thought that stuff was that stuff was great. I I definitely agree with you that the world makes well. I, I simultaneously really enjoy the world building that happens in Reloaded and also think it's dumb as fuck. Oh, so, so, so this is something I want to point out because this is something I discovered that I wish – this is where I wish I didn't look into the world building, right? So 
big scene in in the Matrix Reloaded is you know there's a big fight in this castle, right? This medieval uh-huh. castle that the Merovingian has like a door to, right, out of his restaurant, and um, uh, the end of the scene is the keymaster opens a door to a garage, and Morpheus and Trinity and the keymaster escape, pursued by the twins. And the twins close the door, and Neo bursts through the door, and it's in a mountain. And uh, Link, the operator, tells him, Neo, you are 500 miles north of the city. I'm like, what city has mountains with, like, a European chalet type of place 500 miles to the north of it? I'm like, I wonder what city it is canonically. And I Google it, and the answer is, is the Matrix isn't a facsimile of... 2000 is in the facsimile of 2000. It's a city called the Mega City, and there are just mountains generically 500 miles north of it, and it makes it so much worse, so much worse. Because I thought I thought the city was supposed to be New York, right? Like uh, I, you know, yeah, or, or Paris or Berlin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just, it's a pastiche, yeah. apparently, right? Like you know, um, like based on the first movie, I thought it was supposed to be New York, um, and it makes sense as a pastiche, but it makes it so much worse because I think part of the mystique of that first movie is like we could be in the Matrix right now. Like, like the movie seemed yeah. to like seemed to be directly saying to, to us, "You could be in the Matrix right now," whereas it's only by metaphor telling us we could be in the Matrix right now. If that makes sense, um, yeah, or something like. You know, like, one of the details that I've always loved, right, which is kind of a phantom detail now, right, when the operators pick up, they say, operator, right, which is a thing that used to happen on actual telephones. If I wanted to, I could, I, I don't remember what it was, like, you press zero or whatever, and you call somebody, and that person answers the phone, and they go, operator, right, and you go, you know, hey, can I get whatever that kind of thing? This is this is like old technology. Even by the time the original Matrix was was coming out, I'm pretty sure that this was on its way out, sort of right. thing, right? But that is a neat little world building detail that exists. That's like I could be talking to Link or Dozer, you know, but not even know about it because I'm in the Matrix, right? And I'm just calling the operator as, you know, whatever. Um, so I definitely agree with you that that sucks. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of stupid and dumb. I mean, there's like a lot of stuff that like, you know, you know, we talked about this last time. It's like the mouth covering thing. So part of this, part of this is also brought into relief because the second trailer for uh, Matrix Resurrections dropped today. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but, but a friend I've of the cast, friend of the cast, Monic pointed it out to me and I am, how I want to put this. I saw some early reviews of the Matrix Resurrections that said, that basically said, you know, um, it, it like uh, subverts expectations. I'm like, oh, that's code for it's bad, but no one wants to say it's bad. Uh, <laughs> oh, um, no. So we'll see. I am cautiously optimistic, but my bet is it's going to be like every other, like like I said, like every other Wachowski film. If you look at it with a, I think as a society, and you know, some of this is like a lot of this is bad as we've talked about, right? Like we view films more with a more critical eye to this these details. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we have definitely gotten much worse about that over the years. Yeah, and I think it's going to fall the same. Like the, the, I think the most internally consistent Wachowski film is the Cloud Atlas, and okay. very strong theming. Again, they're good at that. I think Cloud Atlas is very me- mediocre, um, but uh, I think that's got more to do with just like the the story is not sync. Like the Wachowskis um, were not afraid to do things that looked cool but didn't make sense in the Matrix, which is, I think, why they why it works at a certain level, right? Like, yeah. um, Neo standing on top of this balustrade and, like, force-pulling two sides to his hands doesn't really make any sense in the context of what we know about the Matrix. But it looks cool, 
and uh, I can just be like, I don't care, right? And like enjoy, you know, or like, you know, Persephone making a point of shooting the, I, I think canonically they're supposed to be werewolves, but, or no, they are canonically supposed to be vampires because that's how they're referred to in on the Matrix wiki. And there is a vampire movie playing behind them. Right. And in very, like, in like, in like the Zack Snyder brand of subtlety. You yeah. Know? <laughs> but the important point is if she makes a point, she has loaded her guns with silver bullets and she shoots one. Neil proceeds to kill, like, four of them with a mace, right? Like, <laughs> like I don't care. It looked really cool, right? Yeah. But, like, I can, you know, it doesn't, like, if, if you look at it with, with any amount of Yeah, so are we behind spoilers at this point? I, I think we, we are. I think we're well about, okay. Yeah, we're well behind So spoilers. now that we're behind spoilers, I, something I do want to say is um, I forgot about the highway chase. I don't know why. This is, like, the centerpiece moment to me for the yeah. entirety of The Matrix Reloaded. I just, if you were to ask me what fights take place in The Matrix Reloaded, I would have said, well, Neo fights the, you know, the Asian guy in the tea house. That's a fight. There's the Chateau fight where everybody's using weapons. That's cool because normally they're just doing kung fu, but, you know, they're actually pulling weapons and they're fighting with swords and shit. Um, Neo stops that one sword with his with his, his hand, hands. which is yeah. sweet. Uh, there's the Smith fight, which I've always loved, but people hate that. Um, the Smith fight where Neo takes the thing out of the ground and uses like a bow staff. That's fucking, you know, the cool one. That was in all the trailers I remember as a kid. That got me really hyped for The Matrix Reloaded when I was like 13. Um, <laughs> and um, the... Fight at the very end, where or in the, in the beginning and the end, Trinity, sh f f you know, shooting the agents, sh f flying backwards out of the building, shooting up at the agents. Right? I would have named each one of those fights, and I've been like, the, yeah, those are the fights of the Matrix Reloaded. And I completely forgot about this entire. It's like twenty minutes yeah, of the movie. It is the like the middle the section. Yeah, <laughs> and it is the greatest fight scene I think probably in the whole trilogy. Right, like just end to end. I loved every fucking second of this. I could just like there's so many little details in it, like in that extended action scene that I thought were great. One of the things that I had forgotten about was the. It's actually kind of a three way thing because it is the twin ghosts who are trying to get the keymaker, right? The agents who are trying to delete the keymaker and you know, Trinity and Morpheus who are trying to get the keymaker out of there alive, right? And I completely you know, I I never would have thought of uh I never would have thought of the agents in that, but they're really instrumental in that fight scene, right? Like part of the whole thing is that there are also agents there chasing them down. And the agents are doing the thing that I shat on them in the first one for doing, right? Like, if agents can just switch bodies all the time, why don't they do that constantly? And they're doing it all over this, right? Like, first they start as cops, but then the cops get, you know, crashed or whatever, and you just watch the agents zop into, you know, new bodies and continue and continue fighting. And then Morpheus with the fucking samurai sword? Like, oh my god. I just, like, I cannot gush about that whole scene. The, the moment... The moment where the one guy, you know, the, the ghosts use straight razors, right? And one of them is holding his straight razor up to Trinity's neck, right? As like a hostage situation. And without missing a beat, Morpheus pulls his gun and shoots the ghost so that he has to go incorporeal to allow Trinity to like leave. That moment is like the single coolest 
action scene moment, maybe of like the whole 2000s, right? Like it's just like it it, it is gone in the blink of an eye. But it, it's using sort of the world and the powers and the skill sets of these different characters in a way that is like really fun and complex and interesting. In the way that I've talked about, you know, so um, this is one of the things I like about like Avengers: Infinity War, right? You get those moments where. Iron Man is going to team up with, or like Doctor Strange makes the little plates for Star-Lord to, to run up, right? Those sort of tag team moments. This is that, but 15 years ago, before anybody was caring about any of the superhero stuff. I just fucking loved that whole sequence, and I had completely forgotten about it. So, yeah, no. Know, that That's that. I think I generally agree with you. Um, uh, the thing I will say is I think the CG didn't hold up super great. I don't think some of the special effects, like even the practical ones, didn't hold up like super great. Like during that scene, there is like a, a car flips and then like mm -hmm. another car is supposed to ramp off it and flip. And there's a slow motion pull on it. But it's also very, very clear that it's not flipping off the car. It's flipping off a ramp placed behind the car. Right. Yep. And it's just like done so slowly that I'm like, I can see like I can't even like yeah, pretend this that is another thing. This is another thing that I think people... This is why I think that Smith fight with Neo, people get really mad about that. Because you can see really clearly that there are times when it is actually Keanu Reeves, right? Which is something that that is yeah. to the, the benefit of the Matrix. That they are pretty... They're, they're shot pretty far back. You are, are almost always seeing just the face of the actor as they are going through their choreography, which I like a lot. I think that's really sweet, right? Um, but then there are these moments when he becomes... Uh, like a CGI version of himself. And it's a good CGI version of himself for 2003, I'm sure. Right? Yeah. But now it kind of looks like an Xbox 360 version of himself, right? Yeah. Like where it's just like, oh, it's, you know, this is not, this is not quite good enough. Um, especially, which, for, especially for like, like I think the action scene survived a little bit better, but like there is a, like, again, a slow motion shot of an agent jumping off the roof of the car that looks so fake, so fake. <laughs> Um, and like you can see the green screen effects pretty clearly in some places, but you know, that's not mm. the end of the world. Um, that road scene is also one of those places where if you want to do like, you know, cinema sins on it, right? Like, um, there's like cops don't drive the wrong way on the shoulder. A truck transporting motorcycles wouldn't have gas in the bikes, right? Like you Actually, can't stand on a things, sword. <laughs> one of the things that was the most frustrating about that for me was, and I don't know why this occurred to me. But it's just it's a small continuity thing. Trinity looks at the motorcycle bikes, right? And she grabs the keymaker and starts running. And the shot is supposed to be, you know, it's supposed to have parallax, right? Where she's jumping off of the bridge and the truck is going underneath. But I was like, dude, that truck is moving so fast yeah. and they are not falling fast enough. They're gonna splat, right? But then you watch and they come down in the middle of the truck, and you're just like, I just there's no way, you know, like that cut. It's just like, that's like 15 feet where they basically teleported to, in order to land on the thing. And it's a cool moment. It's a cool moment. And I think, you know, like, you I, get swept up in it. And I absolutely was swept up in it. But it is one of those things that, like, I... Man, I, I wonder if that sense. sort of thing is, like, we've been playing too many video games, right? Like, like society mm -hmm. as a whole. Like, we have a more intuitive feel of, like, how those physics wouldn't work because of... Because, because I felt the same thing, right? It was like, that's not going to work. And then it does, it's like, hmm. Well, yeah, because like that's a, that's a stunt I could pull off in Cyberpunk. Right. right. You know, yeah, like, yeah. I have a good sense of, and I do think that that's a video game thing, right? Like one of the things, we had an episode a long time ago where we talked about violence, right? And my, my philosophy on violence in video games is just that video games make incredibly useful 
like spatial simulators, right? Where you put, can put a person into a body and they can kind of um, understand the, the concept of moving that body and, and hitting things either in third person, first person, whatever, right? So I just, I have a lot of experience in a, in a simulated form, jumping off of a bridge, trying to hit a car in something like GTA Cyberpunk or whatever else. And I think that that is just more true in 2021 than it would have been. In you know, this, that was even before yeah. GTA 3, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, Especially in any way where, like, you would be doing it often enough. Like, because you it really has to be GTA or, like, Cyberpunk, right? Like, because even if you, like, look at, like, Oblivion, which is the closest thing, I think that's still three years later, right? Yep. It's like you're not doing a lot of jumping off of bridges onto, like, horse carts or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, I, I, I like that. That's I, I think that's got to be part of it, right? Because like I, I, I latch on to the same thing. Um, other little things like you know, like Trinity goes to download a program, like in the first movie. But the keymaker has a key. She doesn't have to. Is like, well, why? Probably takes about a song. Why wouldn't you, right? Like, <laughs> I actually uh, really like the keymaker. I for, oh. forgot how important he was. Like, I, I think I, I thought of the keymaker almost sort of like a, like a MacGuffin and that. But he actually has lines, and he kind of yeah. has a little character and a personality, right? Like, there's a moment where he's like, I'm not going back, and he just bolts, which I was like, that's, I, I kind of forgot about that, right? Like, he has his own, you know, his own little agency. And, and this kind of stuff, I think, whittled away um, sort of my, uh, my perception of the movie, right? I think something that can sometimes happen is that, like, the longer out it has been since I have watched a thing my perception of it, it warps over time, right? Because you're also incorporating, like, hot takes you've read on Twitter yeah, on, on an even, like, kind of unconscious level, right? And one of the things I remember thinking um, is, you know, how the keymaker is kind of this MacGuffin, but he doesn't really do anything. You know, he's just kind of there to be shuffled about and as, like, an, esc like as an escort quest, right, for an NPC or whatever. But I don't actually think that that's true, Um or it holds up. And even something that, like, you know, so, for instance, last week I said that um, a problem of The Matrix is that it can have these fight scenes that are sort of, they don't really have a point to them, right? Um, and I remember that being very true of The Matrix Reloaded, but it is actually much less true than I remembered, right? Really, the only one that feels that way to me is um, the tea house thing with the Asian guy, right? Right. Where he is the Oracle's bodyguard. And he fights Neo just to like make make sure he's good enough. But it's like that, you never really know a person really until you fight them. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, like, it, it is explicitly pointless, which is like a, also a change, right? Like, like yeah. you would say that the fights in the Matrix Reloaded weren't trying to be pointless. The fight, the 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 that fight in the Matrix Reloaded is is explicitly a fight that is forced for. Esoteric reasons, I guess, is the easiest way yeah. to put it. But I think every other, you know, everything that happens in that highway chase is all earned, you know, in the narrative, yeah. right? And it makes plenty of sense given the the plot structure that we're in. Even the Chateau fight, which I also also think I would have said is kind of superfluous because of whatever else, right? Um, it it is it is also you know a core piece of the narrative just because of the way that the the beginning interaction. Uh, sets it where Neo is buying time for Trinity and Morpheus to get right. the Keymaster and get you know and get them out or whatever, and they're being pursued just by the two twins while Neo is dealing with all of these other with all of these other guys, uh, and also the Smith fight because obviously this is Neo re-encountering Smith and realizing like I think something that people said 
at the time was that the Smith fight didn't matter because Neo just flies away at the end. But I actually think that's a really important detail, right? Like, it, this is Neo realizing, holy shit, I, I can't beat this guy, right? I can't do the thing that I did at the beginning of the last movie and just 1v1 Smith until he's dead. There is, I have to come up with a different strategy to deal with this thing. And also I have other priorities like the Keymaker and all this other shit with the Architect and the Source to deal with, which is actually a very good moment. And I like it a lot now. Um, but uh, but yeah. No, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah. Um, and like, even like, you know, Persephone's motivations make sense, right? Like she's essentially trying to like, rekindle like a spark with the Merovingian right mm -hmm. which is like why she lets the second the second werewolf go um uh right like and tell like she wants to force conflict to like you know like make the Merovingian mad right like which makes sense um that kiss scene like it all makes some amount of sense it's like a little weird but like like the, the like the whole orgasm th cake thing is like weird <laughs> but like you know <laughs> Like this movie is like this this trilogy is about free will and determinism and like various and sundry meditations on that and that is it is very hard into that right like you know yeah it reminds me a lot actually of uh, do you remember in the second Kingsman movie where there's that really gratuitous shot of like the fingering or whatever that goes on in in that do you remember any of this. Uh, we reviewed this movie on the podcast, and I said that was kind of gross. I really did not like that. I had the exact same reaction to the, like, digitized, like, watching the digitized orgasm happen. And I was like, this, I feel like we could have been subtler about this one, you guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you, you, could, you, you could be as, like, subtle as, like, or as euphemistic as the Merovingian was with, like, the, you know... The digitization instead of like zooming in on like the the, the, <laughs> the green flowing letters crotch, right? Like, <laughs> I was just so, I was like, who? Can you imagine being the guy who has to sit there and model like the, the green flowing letters crotch? I get, you know, he's out there somewhere. Whoever you are, I I appreciate the work that you did, but no thanks. <laughs> I don't. Think yeah, no, I was gonna say like I'm sure that there's like you know. I don't know if you've looked at the most popular like Skyrim mods, right? But like, you know, there's definitely people out there who are who are into that kind of thing. <laughs> That's true. I did not think about that. I did not think about that. That's fair. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I I like the Merovingian a lot. Uh, but partially because I kind of forgot how much personality he has, especially com in comparison to um Morpheus and Trinity and Neo. Something that I I, re I remember um, of uh, a professor of mine saying, because um, in when I was at when I was in school, I wrote a screenplay about robots and humans, right? And we were talking about that, and he was talking about how one of the things he really liked about the Matrix is that the robots have more, or the programs technically, have more personality than the humans, um, which. I 
had forgotten about, but it was like nestled in the recesses of my brain until like right as I was watching the mayor of Virginia go, and I was like, God, yeah, he does. He is just like dripping. He's like oozing with personality. And so is the Oracle and so is Smith in comparison to Neo and Trinity and Morpheus, all of whom are very, you know, like kind of subdued and reserved. And I think that that's cool for them and everything. Um, but it was just like a funny thing to note. Like that, that, he has that line about swearing in French, which is its own little planting and payoff because then he shows up and he's pissed and he curses out his wife in French. I was just like, yeah, hell yeah, dude. The Merovingian rocks. Yeah, and he's he's got a moment in the trailer, in the new trailer, so maybe we'll see him again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Whoa! Oh, yeah. that's exciting, actually. Yeah. That's really exciting. No, I, and I, I agree. I think, he, I think he's a cool character. I think... The whole like I think the whole circumstances around this movie are, are you know a little bit weird. Like I said, you look at it too closely, and, and a lot of stuff just like kind of like is a little bit like like the separately the idea of programming a piece of food to like do something to someone right is an interesting piece of world building right like you know mm. puts a spin on kind of like you know uh, you know an orgasmic food right like you know like that's that's enough of an expression that like it makes sense right. And his stuff about, like, free will and causality makes sense. They don't really tie together that well, right? Like, like the, the, the kind of, like, you know, I don't believe in free will, therefore orgasm cake doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it. But, like, they're both cool pieces independently. They just don't marry together super well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when he's talking about free will, he's basically having a conversation with the Oracle more than with Neo or anyone else, right? Like, that and, – and that was something that I that – I, keyed into this time in a way that I probably wouldn't have when I was younger, right? I bet I probably would have been, you know, like, frustrated a little bit um, that he's talking about cause and effect or whatever. Uh, but, like, th that's the central kind of dramatic question of the, you know, the, the whole movie and the climax, all right? Something else that I remember people saying um, was that Reloaded doesn't have a climax, uh, which in a way sort of makes sense because Revolutions and Reloaded were shot essentially together and they were theoretically kind of one movie that then got kind of cut in half and they were only released, they were released like six months apart, right? Um, Reloaded was released in like March of that year and I'm pretty sure Revolutions came out in like November of that year, right? Um, which is which is interesting kind of in and of itself. But, uh, but I actually think that there is a real climax here and a real kind of dramatic arc that plays out and that dramatic arc is all about whether or not neo believes in free will or believes in determinism right is he is he going to be a kind of uh you know a slave to that cause and effect that the merovingian describes or is he actually making the choices that he he says he's making when he's talking with the oracle and the interesting thing is that actually the movie does not give you a definitive answer right, right. because when he is in the architect's room he talks about neo choosing trinity and the architect says i can see the chemical reactions going off in your brain as you chase this you know whatever this like fleeting emotion and that emotion that he's talking about is love because he knows that neo is going to go back into the matrix even though that is like doom this is the prophesized doom of everything right um which i thought was really interesting uh like leaving that as this kind of open you know like this open question um, that even though Neo thinks he is making choices and wants to be making choices, right? Technically speaking, 
it is not a resolved question because every time that the oracle prophesizes that he is going to do something even minor things like sit on the bench he does them even if he insists that he is doing them of his own volition right um and obviously that being a thing that he can resolve in the next you know in the next movie yeah. i guess is part of the purpose i mean this, this is also like a very classic like there's a lot of like weird um Weird maybe is the wrong term. There's a, there's a lot of like stronger Christian allusions and less of kind of like the the, the Eastern stuff that was in the, in the in the previous movie, right? Like, yeah, you know, the idea of like can you have free will with an omniscient God, right? Like, is kind mm -hmm. of like a a different but very similar version of like the Oracle question, right? Like, um, uh, and what was the other thing I was gonna say? Oh, and like, there's a lot of like, um, you know. Morpheus is kind of like a very blind, like he sounds like a like a, a a Christian fundamentalist is probably the wrong word, but like something in that vein, like a, like a strict Christian adherent is probably the best way to put it. Um, and a lot of the things that he talks about, and you know, you know, end of the day, he's wrong, right? Like you know, like the the prophecy, the prophecy is, is an explicit line, a system of control, as as as, as Neo puts it. But um, I don't know, it's. It is, it's interesting because, like, like you say, right? Like the the architect can see him making the wrong decision, right? Um, but the fact of the matter is, is, the architect is ostensibly supposed to be trying to make him to make the right decision. Um, the architect also pretty explicitly says, like, there needs to be a real choice in order for people to accept the matrix, right? Like, yeah. Um, so that implies that it's real, but it's you know, it's all it's. It's all kind of like food for thought, like, you know, college college dorm room argument bait type stuff. Velociraptor stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I actually think that is maybe one of the things that is... So there's two things about the architect conversation that I like. And I think I'm ultimately, like, in favor of it as the climax of the film. Just because, number one, I think it's incredibly ballsy to say that the, the premise of the narrative of the original movie is itself a huge duplicitous manipulation of essentially the bad guy right to keep to keep control right that the one only exists as this sort of anomaly of code that is the the collection of free will of everyone in the system right those who reject the system have to have a place to go that place is zion and you know kind of the the system of government uh and uh you know the the hovercrafts and all that other stuff all this is a product of people who would otherwise reject the system but that's just uh you know that is a natural remainder because they're getting 99 percent of the population subconsciously anyway right like that is an incredibly ballsy thing to do and is a very cool sort of reveal right um and the other thing that I like a lot about The Architect is the stakes of it. Something that I keyed into this time in a way that uh, that I that I didn't really think of is how much The Architect like talks about the unprecedented nature of Neo's choosing Trinity, right? Where he chooses to go back into the Matrix rather than, you know, merge with the Source to reboot the Matrix. Um, yeah, like it, this is sort of like the the this is the untread ground this is the the secret water that we've we've never had before right and i think that that's really like interesting and compelling stuff for a film that it's talking about right like the cycles and the determinism like i remember my mind being blown when he said like this is the sixth version 
of this conversation or whatever. Like he, like Neo is the sixth one that has come through the matrix. Like, I don't know. I just think all of that is insanely cool and compelling and interesting. And it also reminded me a lot of the empire strikes back. I think that is actually the, uh, the blueprint for this movie is that it is supposed to feel like the empire strikes back ending, uh, as compared to a trilogy sequel that would have been like, there would have been like the two towers where, you know, it is another story in the universe and it progresses the plot. But at the end of the day, you know, the two towers ends on a pretty peppy note, right? They win at the battle of Helm's deep. Uh, there is still more stuff to do, but otherwise it's, we're we're upbeat we're we're gonna go keep fighting sauron frodo and sam are gonna continue taking the ring into mordor right they escape all of their other travails or whatever that's sort of like the upbeat sequel archetype the downbeat sequel archetype is something like the empire strikes back where it's just like boy the, bruh, yeah things yeah. went wrong things went pretty fucking bad and i kind of feel like that's where the matrix reloaded is coming from yeah although not entirely right like trinity's alive right like he he like he survived like you know she survives because love conquers all type of type of deal um they'll just have to deal with the consequences of that in the next film um yeah. oh also like the bait po- i think the first time i watched this like like when i you know years and years ago I didn't follow, like, the whole, like, Smith exiting the Matrix thing, um, which is, like, a very B-plot that, like, I had never paid it to really pay close attention to until this watch. Um, like, and that's, like, the, the very kind of, like, direct cliffhanger of, uh, of, of this is that there is, a, there is a human with Smith's brain in him, I guess. Uh, mm, yeah, Smith's consciousness gets downloaded out of the Matrix into Bane. Yeah. Um, I remember I also like that. I like that detail back then. Um, and I like it now. I loved, I just loved Smith. Smith is yeah. kind of the perfect, like, uh, just sort of wrench to throw into, to throw into everything. The one thing I didn't like about Smith is that he is in the source with the key, with when the key maker brings him into that hallway, that hallway is full of Smiths. I kind of hated that. I was like, where did the, where the, that, that doesn't seem supported by anything else, right? Like, how does Smith get to that location? Um, and it also was, like, entirely useless, I guess, except just to put, you know, somebody chasing them into uh, the different, you know, into the architect's room, right? Um, which, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, also conveniently conveniently delays them so uh so that Trinity can get to the power station. Uh, yeah, that's fair, I yeah. guess. That that whole part I actually liked quite a lot. I kind of forgot about the the plot mechanics of the back half of the movie are actually very good with like Nairobi um and the council, right? And you have Commander Locke who doesn't believe in Morpheus's bullshit and is just trying to like protect Zion or whatever. Um and uh and then there's the one the there's the one scene where you are in the other hovercraft where the one guy is on like the shitty railing. And I think this is when someone is talking about, I think this is, the, this is during a moment where someone is talking about like this determinism stuff. This like cause so, effect. So, so this is, this, I thought this was actually pretty great. Cause I, I thought the scene, like I thought the, that there was like a lot of like strong tropes that was like, you know, Soren, I think, is the guy is is the captain's name of of, of that mm. secondary shoot. He's like, you know, you know, he's actually probably he has no doubts. That he jumps up immediately, right? It takes there, but it's like you don't know who he is. 
he's the guy that's, he's like the red shirt right like mm. um and it's 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 almost darkly humorous because uh you know morpheus is like i see providence right i see fate three captains three things that need to be done and it's intertwined with like a, the jump ahead yeah, of like yeah, things that is going what wrong it is. yeah yeah yeah, because the part, I mean, in a weird way, it's almost like a black comedy, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, because you watch as that, like, rusty joint kind of flexes under the strain of the guy running through the catwalk. And they and they hear, oh, no, proximity alert. There's, you know, there's these sentinels. The sentinels are using this bomb nobody's ever seen before where they whip the bomb at the, the, at the baseball thing. Baseball But the guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the guy runs over the catwalk and it collapses and it kills the operator, right? And, no, and none of the other... Whatever they're called, what are they, what are they, like? A, what's the generic Matrix guy called? I don't even know. Um, they they're all unaware. They're just, they're still doing stuff in the power station. So when the bomb hits, they just they just all wink out of existence, right? I th- I thought all of that stuff was really compelling and kind of the drama there of um, uh, you know uh, the different the different teams. All everybody has their. It's almost like a, a little mini heist movie that is just the third act of this film. Right. right? Yeah. No. I mean, you know. Uh, like like I said, very very tropey in a way that was like maybe a little too much for me, right? Like it's like the red shirt has an important role, and this is the thing that's going to force Trinity into the Matrix, right? To force the scene to happen, which you know, in some ways, you might say is just, is in service of the theme. To me, it felt very tropey, but you know, it still worked, right? Like you know, um, yeah. I also one other thing that I completely forgot about is the cutaways to Link as Link is watching the stuff happening right there's the moment where where neo flies in at the end of the highway chase because the two bus or the two trucks crash into one another and morpheus just prays that neo is going to be there so he and the keymaster jump at the moment of impact right and the buses are exploding in slow motion underneath them and neo flies in and carries them out like superman and uh and link like you know, like, I loved that. That shit was great, right? It happens again later in the movie where he's like, where, you know, Neo is flying as fast as he can because he's trying to, ke- he knows Trinity is falling out of that building because he's seen it in his dreams. And he is just, he's like whipping up this huge cloud of like cars and broken glass and everything as he catches her, right? Like those moments had a, a real, there's just something about Link being there like me watching it unfold that gets me hype for those things as they happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, he's, he's almost like kind of like the rowdy guy at the theater. That's like Mm. shouting, shouting at the, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that that is actually kind of what it feels like. Actually just, I like Link's character in general, which I, you know, he doesn't have a ton to do, but it's just on a on a on a smaller kind of personal level, right? Like he talks about, uh, y- you know, um, Dozer and Tank. Well, he, Dozer are the are the original operators, right? Of the other show. I don't think he, he um, mentions Tank, but like he he talks about Dozer, and Dozer has apparently died off screen, right? Like because he's Dozer. Yeah, I'm cousin. pretty sure Dozer dies from his wounds in the first one, right? Like. I don't think that this is confirmed anywhere. Oh, I, I, I always got the sense that Dozer kills Cypher, but he is still fucked up from getting hit with that thing. And he essentially succumbs to those wounds, even as he helps them get out of the Matrix. Oh, I, the I, the first one. I thought it was just that um, 
he like that the actor wanted too much money and they killed him off screen. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I, that is definitely like. Uh, Let's ask the Matrix. Oof. The, yeah, I'm just kind of inventing headcanon in my in the back of my head, sort of to fill in that logical gap. But I don't think it's ever, you know, explained. Oh on no, screen. it's it's Tank. I, I think Tank and Dozer confused. Dozer's the one that dies immediately. Tanks. Okay. Um, do, do. Okay. Yeah. So Tank is the operator on the Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, is unclear uh, whether he or uh, if he's if he's dead from the severe wound from the energy bolt or of unrelated causes. Regardless, he's deceased by the time of the Matrix Reloaded with his place with the place as operator filled by his brother-in-law Link. Oh my God, you're right. Tank's actor Marcus Chong uh, reportedly demanded to be paid more for appearing in the sequels. A breakdown of talks between him and the Wachowskis ensued, leading to Tank being written out and replaced by Link. Holy shit! (laughs) You called it. Hey, at least they like made a diagetic reason rather than being like, "Tank, you look different today," <laughs> right? Like, they yeah, that's true. Fucking that's true. Machine, yeah, but just right? like the stuff with him and Z, who is Tank's sister, um, who is the uh, you know when they're in Zion together. Um, I think that stuff is great and cool, and I don't know, I love it. I actually, I I, I liked Zion uh, a lot this time. Uh, I really like the conversation that Neo has with the counselor down in, like, the engineering level where the counselor's like, I, I'm too old to make points, you know? Like, it's just, like, the perfect example of that, like, kind of uh, wise old guy kind of trope, right? Um, and I think it's an important piece of the thematic through line because it is where Neo asserts that he has free will, right? Like, he has control because he can shut the machines off or whatever, um, even if that is challenged by both the movie and by the counselor uh, as they're talking. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... Uh, the 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 Zion aspect of the world building, I thought, was, was pretty well done, right? Like, very kind of, like... Roman Senate vibes, right? Like, um, like you said, the the stuff about like the counselor, you know, old um, old men don't make points. Um, and just a call and response, right? Like Neo being like, "Is that why there are no young men on the council?" Um, <laughs> he's like, "That's a good point. That's just good dialogue, right? Like, yeah. well written dialogue." <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, um, I don't know. I think, I think the movie is. It's better than it gets than its reputation, but also kind of like I don't know. I just think that like I think maybe like the start of that transformation of people paying too much attention to like the little details happens between the Matrix and Reloaded, right? And part of also why like the Wachowskis have not like I think the closest thing to like a critical success the Wachowskis have had since the Matrix is maybe um. Speed Racer? Like, I don't know if it was... Okay, I was going to say Speed Racer. Everybody fucking loves Speed Racer. Oh, do they? Okay, because I... I, I, Well, you know, like, in the... In the... I don't know. I in the like the so I've talked about Gonzo movies before, right? This is the Patrick H. Willem thing. He talks about how movies like Aquaman, Jupiter Ascending is another one, um, Mortal Engines. These are just movies that are over the brimming with imagination, creativity. Um, and one of the movies that he talks about when he talks about this is he talks about Speed Racer and how he thinks Speed Racer just absolutely nails the feel of a Gonzo, you know, like a Gonzo film. Um, the, the perfect Gonzo movie that he talks about, actually, is Mad Max Fury Road, but he mentions Speed Racer kind of uh, uh, along the way. Um, 
And, you know, I, I, I agree. I, I like Speed Racer a lot. Um, just on a, on like a visual flair level, almost like more than anything else. But, uh, yeah. Apparently, so on IMDb at least, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Matrix or Speed Racer has a lower rating than um, than Cloud Atlas, and wow, and Revolutions and Reloaded. Um, also, wow, and I, that confuses me. Yeah. But okay. Apparently, the Wachowskis were writers on V for Vendetta. I did not realize that. Yeah, I did know that they did V for Vendetta. They did not direct the movie. I think they produced yeah. it and wrote it. Um, but it is commonly attributed to them in the same way that, like, you know, like Steven Spielberg will sometimes get credit for movies that he didn't direct. Uh, or, like, Peter Jackson does this also, where he gets credit. Like, people talk about Mortal Engines as a Peter Jackson movie, but he only produced that movie. That was directed by somebody else. Um, that's what happened with V for Vendetta, which also, by the way, fantastic film. I love that. I, yeah, yeah. Every second of V for Vendetta, I think, is compelling AF. And I also think that the comic is amazing and better, but just, like, they are both great. <laughs> like, yeah. No, I mean, that, that's interesting, right? Because, like, The Cloud Atlas is an adaptation. V is an adaptation. Speed Racer is mm. an adaptation. Obviously, although the Speed Racer, like, triple fake with Racer X is, like... like I hate that. that I mean, so, worst. so Racer X secretly being Speed's brother is, like, a thing from the show. But you just mm. don't need the fucking scene where Speed Racer's like, are you my older brother? And Speed Racer, and Racer X being like, no. Or you just, like, cut that scene and it's fine, <laughs> right? Like, yep. And this, this is a thing that Hollywood does all over the place. And every time I fucking hate it. Uh, the, it's just, uh, why? It is the, I, it is the worst thing. If you are going to show me a thing and I want, and I need to like cross it off my list, that's okay. Right. But just hold to that. Don't fucking lie to me. I hate that. It's all over the place. I feel like. Yeah. Apparently they were writers on the enter the matrix, matrix online and path of Neo, the three video games. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And then they also did the Animatrix, which I remember everybody yeah. loving. Though I didn't for reasons that I don't remember. Uh, and I don't remember the last time I watched it. So that's probably a very outdated opinion of mine. But I remember thinking it was stupid at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I know people really like the, the Animatrix. Apparently, they also there's a fourth video game which that the Wachowskis were writers on, um, which is an arcade pachinko machine. <laughs> Featuring footage called CRM. <laughs> oh my god! This is this is like a big meme for like Konami games, which is like yep. the sequel only exists as like pachinko footage. Um, I know that there's like um, in in Guilty Gear, um, there is there is important canon lore that is only present on a pachinko machine somewhere. <laughs> uh, Every time I think that like you know one of these big properties like really fucks up its lore, you just gotta think back to. <laughs> think, think about pachinko, right? Like pachinko machines, yeah. Um, but yes, enough about enough about the the Wachowskis, um, and their their various non matrix exploits. Um, yep. So I don't know. I just have everything positive to say about the Matrix Reloaded. Uh, I I think part of you know one of the, one of the things that I'm interested about when it comes to uh, the Matrix Four, something that I've been more attuned to is how much kind of perception matters, right? Like the power of the perception of the thing factoring into people's criticism of the thing. Um, you know, this is the this is 
like the, some of this is like video game stuff, right? Like people obviously have a very positive perception of like Final Fantasy 14. You see that all over the place and how the response to the server issues of the recent expansion are influenced by people having this extremely positive view of Yoshi P and the Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 14 game. So they are kind of like willing to excuse this like server bullshit that is otherwise pretty frustrating and bad. Right. Um, you can imagine a version of that hitting another game with less, you know, like less goodwill and it would be taken in a much kind of different light. And I think the same thing is sort of true for, you know, how we look at directors and movies in these sorts of franchises, right? Like, you know, if people liked Zack Snyder as a filmmaker, would his movies be better received, right? And are we, because people like the the Wachowskis and they like The Matrix a lot, right? Are we kind of primed to enjoy The Matrix Resurrections because of... Uh, or in the opposite... Kind of like because of that fact, right? Or in the opposite direction, right? Like... Reloaded in Resurrections, I think, kind of have, like, this cult kind of, like, you know, secretly look good, kind of like with the prequels, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, like I've talked to you about the Apologize to George um, movement on Twitter. Um, yeah. Um, like, how does that play into this? Like, the like I said, the Wachowskis have had, let's call them mixed things since, right? Like, Jupiter Ascending is, 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 is probably the biggest thing in my mind of the, that comes out as, like, being bad as, as, as a project of theirs. Um, yeah. I like them not like, like, uh, like, uh, being attached to a lot of other things. How is this all going to affect it? Right. Like, even though, like what I said, right. Like I, like I saw reviews that said that the, that the resurrections subverts expectations. And my immediate thought was like a point against it. Right. Like, and how much, yeah, I mean, that's like a star Wars thing, right? Like yeah. even, you know, like I feel like the response to the force awakens has soured incredibly over the years right you know when the force awakens first came out i mean obviously this was six years ago now right the force awakens came out it was everybody loved it right it was this glowing thing but there was always that like rot in it yeah. right where people would say i had a great time but and then the but is some you know you know like problem right but i think over time those problems almost kind of metastasized right and then the, the last jedi comes out and all of a sudden that kind of triggers this explosive reevaluation where i feel like you know people really rejected or i don't want to say people but a, a, a contingent of the star wars population really rejected the last jedi and i think that caused them to go back to the force awakens and go this is this is bad, right? This is not a thing that I yeah. You know, no, this is not a thing that I enjoy. Yeah, I, and there, there's there's other stuff there too, right? Like you know, um, and you know, I, I, I do not have a good sense for like how like the general public thinks of the Last Jedi, right? Because like I think there's like two very divided camps in online Absolutely. spaces, and like those people also neither are probably representative of the general Star Wars viewer. Right, who's like Star Wars? Yep. A Star Wars happened, right? Like, I mean, the crazy. I mean, I feel weird because. On one hand, I am a Force Awakens hater, but I am a Last Jedi lover, so I feel like I, you know, you either kind of have a, the 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 court of people that go, those two movies are good as a unit, right? Like those two things are bundled together, or those two movies are bad bundled together, and then everybody hates Rise of Skywalker because it's awful. Um, but uh, I think that that's you know like it. That's a real question. One of the other things that I think is really interesting is how much prequel fans hate the sequel trilogy right i 
at, at a certain point, Apologize I picked up a couple George. of, well, yeah, I, I picked up a couple of like, like, um, I just started following a couple of people on Twitter for like completely unrelated reasons, right? But it was really clear that these were people who loved the prequels, right? And they would tweet these like glowing things about like the Ewan McGregor, you know, Obi-Wan movie and oh, Hayden Christensen is coming back as Darth Vader for, oh, 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 you know, like whatever, right? Like, and you know, they're, they're younger, right? They're maybe five or 10 years younger than us kind of thing. Um, but they also tweet this like vitriol about the sequel trilogy. They fucking hate the sequel trilogy so much, and I think that that's like a real undercurrent to to this whole thing, right? Like, you know, one of the things that um, I'm also stealing from Patrick H. Williams is he talks about how the prequels were rejected, right, as a you know, as a story, people were frustrated by that story, and the prequels are bad. It's kind of the cultural consensus that comes up around you know, that, right? But they accepted the prequels as canon. Everyone agrees that Anakin Skywalker was, you know, taken into the Jedi Order by Qui-Gon Jinn and Qui-Gon was killed and, you know, Obi-Wan became his master and the Clone Wars happened, right? Like, everyone agrees all of that is still canon. That all still feels like part of the lore, right? But the sequel trilogy... Like, people, like, basically explicitly reject that as canon, especially the rise of Skywalker, which is just a, a really interesting and and complex... Uh, yeah, there's, like, I think there's, like, interesting questions there about, like, authorship, right? Like, because, like, you know... Yeah. Like, you know, it's not George Lucas, right? Like, there is the, like, you know, there is the potential to kind of, like... You could theoretically throw it out if you really wanted to. Not that I think that that's likely, but you could, Um yeah, I think it's more likely that it just get the, the comic book solution to this is good stuff gets referenced and cemented as foundational pieces of lore, right? So, for instance, uh, Aquaman's baby dies, right? Uh, you know, big story from the 1980s. Aquaman and Mira, they have a son. Black, Black Manta kidnaps that son as an infant child and kills him. He dies. Uh that is an important moment in Aquaman history, and it is referenced in future Aquaman comics quite a lot, right? As this thing that really, like, defines him, right? That, you know, first of all, Black Manta's a baby killer, right? Like, fucked up. But also that he has, you know, this is the kind of weight of the tragedy that uh, that he has suffered, right? Uh, there is a lot of other dumb shit in Aquaman comics just never gets brought up again you know like it's just left by the wayside and i kind of think that that's the answer to you know some of these sort of like continuity questions as continuity grows and gets bigger and bigger and bigger the dumb stuff just kind of falls by the wayside um and it's the good stuff that gets brought up again and again right because people want to reach back to that they want to reference that they want that to be um you know an important part of the mythos and 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 the character. And for better or worse, man, the Clone Wars, that shit's getting referenced, you know? The prequels get referenced quite a lot. Uh, I feel like the sequel trilogy, I would be interested, I suppose, to say, to see a version of that where it's like... You know, a good version of this might be Pirates of the Caribbean 5, which I saw in theaters, and is incredibly deeply woven into the lore of the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And I was like, who is this for? <laughs> you know, who is the person that cares deeply about the, like, entrenched lore of the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movies, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, like, there's, 
don't know. And it'll be interesting to see how resurrection plays into all of this, right? Because it is dependent, like, something I think that, like, something, if, if I want to be very generous to The Force Awakens, part of the thing that, like, ruins it in the rearview mirror is that there's the potential for the trilogy to recontextualize the older movies, right, in a way that, like, makes it retroactively a bit better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, as a starting point, The Force Awakens isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world, right? Neither sequel, like, I don't think either sequel really does that, right? Like, I think that, I think I think the big failure of the sequel trilogy is that it wasn't planned as, it, it was, like, sold as a trilogy but not planned as a trilogy, right? Yeah. Like, and and uh, The Last Jedi and The Force Awakens, or and The Rise of Skywalker um, fail to capitalize on the trilogy-ness of it. Um, how much of that is on whatever director is, you know, up in the air or whatever, but, you know. Um, and I think that's also a positive, like, I think that the Resurrections has the, po- has the potential to recontextualize the first three movies in a way that isn't going, that, that could that, that could go either way, right? It's a risk, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I also think that it's tough because we've seen this happen and it's good. Uh in the, in the form of Blade Runner 2049, right? You know, there have been a, a, a number of these kind of long sequels, right? The Force Awakens being one of them um, and being bad at it by kind of just repeating the same things and invalidating everything that came before, like all that stuff. But then there's also Blade Runner 2049, which was fantastic, right? Um, and was kind of the, the sequel that I wanted, right? For a Blade Runner movie. Um, and so I'm interested to see in a version of that for the matrix where it kind of comes down. I actually think that the, it, it, you know, one of the neat things about the matrix is it sets up that sort of cyclical nature for itself. Right. You know, we know that there is kind of this, um, this inevitability to the cycle of the one and the source and the matrix and all of that stuff. Right. Um, and so the idea of a kind of rebooted or reinvented world is one that is kind of contained within the canon of the Matrix, whereas that wouldn't be, you know, you can't do a reboot of Star Wars, right? Just because the laws of the the world building laws of that universe don't support remaking reality, like fundamentally redesigning reality. Um, so, yeah, yeah. We'll I mean, see. I guess there have been more than just I. I I think of Blade Runner twenty forty nine as being the best one, but there have been a number of these different, you know, uh, like long sequels uh, to stuff that's come out yeah, a long yeah. time ago. Like Ghostbusters Afterlife is the most recent version of of them, which I have not seen. Neither, but I'm reliably informed by the hot takes on Twitter that it is garbage. Apparently, really, I've I have heard that. Oh, it, really? I I have I have heard that it's fine. <laughs> um. Um, I have not heard. I have not seen that it's garbage. I have seen that it is is okay, right? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder if there's like a. I feel like. I, f- I don't know. I feel I, like I there's a set of people that opinion. want it to be bad because of the backlash against the other Ghostbusters. Sure, and I feel yeah. like there are uh, there's there's also people, who people who want, that to, be want good, it to be good, good because yeah. of. The- and this is what I'm talking about when it comes to perceptions, right? Like you yeah. know, I th- I think people have that you know that invested sort of. Um, I don't know. They're, 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 it's weird. And I almost want to examine it as its own thing because what happens is the discourse about the thing becomes so powerful that it sort of like circumvents the, whatever the thing is itself, right? Like the discourse is like this hurricane and it doesn't even matter 
what is happening, you know, like the the facts of Ghostbusters Afterlife. The important thing is the discourse around it. That's what is affecting everyone's, uh, you know, kind of perception about this stuff. And I think that that's a storm that's hit a variety of different, you know, uh, I don't know. Like the the a version of this is. Um, did you watch the nine point two announcement trailer for uh, the next WoW patch? No, I have not. It's just a ten minute. You know, they get a bunch of developers on you know on the on screen. This is a personal pet peeve. This is the thing that I argue with people about Reddit, uh, or I argue on Reddit with people about. Right. Uh, the very first thing is Steve Denuser. He's the like the lead writer on the team, and he talks about how. Um, he says Shadowlands, uh, you know, is a story that features threads that have gone through all of the World World of Warcraft expansions, all the way back to Warcraft 3, right? Then he talks about Shadowlands being a story in three acts, right? Uh, and how they conceived of it as that, you know, they conceived of it as a story that's in, that's in three acts. And now we are at the beginning of the final act. That's what 9.2 is, right? This is the final act. The Jailer, you know got his things he is now he now has the power to do the thing the bad thing right rewrite reality um and then he says this is the final chapter of this book of the warcraft saga right those are three lines from from that trailer and what people did was they kind of fused the first line and the third line to say that steve denuser said that this is the final chapter of the Warcraft three sto like story, right? To then go, that's bullshit. Nobody in Warcraft three, you know, like the jailer is completely invented. All of this lore is completely invented or whatever. Steve Denuser is a hack or whatever else, but that's just literally not true. That's not what he said, right? That 9.2 is the final chapter of the Shadowlands story. And all you need to do is watch the video to see the three lines in sequence to get that answer. But the thing is, now, if I were to go and tweet, Steve Denuser thinks that Shadowlands is the culmination of the Warcraft 3 story. That is the thing that people believe. Because the discourse around that video has so thoroughly warped, you know, kind of the reality of what got said that it's the... It, it that's what exists right um and maybe that's like a matrix thing i don't know perception is reality we're all living in the matrix of our own perceptions of reality what is real <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what can you, everything you see in these that's just electrical signals which is like something it's a rough paraphrase of the of, of line from the first matrix which you is, know what's funny is i actually kind of think that the matrix uh is a little basic in its modern uh like, the idea of the Matrix is so, like, well-established at this point that it's almost, like, a little too... It's a little too normal, all things considered, just because we've grown in terms of our expectations and understanding of, like, sci-fi shit, right? Like, Westworld, it's so much more complex on a world-building level than the Matrix ever was, right? Sure. It kind of gets to stand on those shoulders. I was going to say, that's, like, a very clear standing on the shoulders of giants type yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, No, like, that's exactly the point I make. It's just, like, the Seinfeld effect in a way, right? The Matrix primed us to understand, right, a movie like Blade Runner 2049 that is asking, you know, complex questions mm. about how human is human, what is human, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we're well into the back half of the episode, so I must ask you, buddy... How was your week? How was my week? Uh, my week 
has honestly been pretty low key, and I don't have really anything complex to talk about. I, I mentioned Succession uh, last week, which I've continued on very slightly. Honestly, it's a, do you ever get the feeling that sometimes the shows or your, the movies that you're watching or like the books you're reading are too stressful for your real life? <laughs> like, I the that show is so stressful and so high stakes in a way. It's not. It's stressful is a weird way to put it, but it's just. But high stakes, you know, where <clears throat> even though I hate all of those characters and I think they're all loathsome, um, it I I have a hard time binging it, like watching it episode to episode, because like I get a real anxiety that like a phantom anxiety for the characters as they are making these moves that could destroy their fucking lives. Right. Like, you know, they're making these, like these decisions that has just sort of like too high stress. So I've actually been, I, I like, it's like alternating between that and American dad, which is the exact opposite, the lowest stakes ever, you know, like completely superfluous bubble gum, um, that I can just kind of continue chewing uh but it's just like that playing wow playing hearthstone the new hearthstone expansion comes out tomorrow which i'm excited about because the clear goal is to slow the meta down a lot um i have enjoyed this hearthstone meta a medium amount because my ver the the kinds of decks that i like uh in warrior specifically are pretty good um where there's a pirate warrior deck that kind of transitions into into an over the overtime sort of value deck, but otherwise the meta is extremely fast, and I hate fast metas almost as a rule. Um, and so my hope is the new the new set fractured in Alterac Valley. It's a it's a whole set built around Horde versus Alliance at Alterac Valley stuff. Um, my hope is the new set will slow the meta down by introducing a bunch of good control tools, and I'll actually be able to play control decks again. But I don't know. We'll see. That's basically been that's basically been my life. What have you been up to? Um, so over the weekend, I attempted to play Final Fantasy XIV, but I got stuck <laughs> in a queue. Um, uh, interesting in that um, today they actually announced that they will be giving a week of free time to everybody who's who's active right now, which is nice, right? Um, uh, what else? So the big thing to me, at least, is I finished uh, Heretics of Dune. Um, which um, I have heard various opinions. I actually liked it quite a bit. Um, there is some weird, like I thought this was going to be the weird religion book, and it kind of was, but it's more the weird sex book, which is like less good. <laughs> um, I still think there's a lot of like redeeming qualities. I think part, I think part of the reason that I like it a lot is that um, one of the characters, like, first of all, there's a ton of characters. Like there's always a ton of characters, but like a ton of characters that get a lot of focus. And one of the characters that gets a lot of focus in Heretics of Dune is a character named Miles Tegg, who is, in sharp contrast to almost every other character in the Dune universe, is a pretty good guy, right? Like, he's a pretty moral and upstanding guy. Um, sure. He is supposed to be kind of like, um, he isn't any Atreides, and he is supposed to look very much like the Duke Leto. And the Duke Leto is, like, really the only other character in the series who is a good character, who is, like, a ultimately a good guy, right? Like, in the original Dune, Paul's pretty pretty good, but, like, he kind of, like, like the realities of ruling a galaxy-spanning empire kind of get to him in the, the, the further books. Um, it also is kind of, like, musing on this kind of, like... I don't like. I mean, you could like do Heretics of Dune and cast Os cast Oscar Isaac as Miles Tegg because he's supposed to resemble the original Duke. But like, it is like 
like casting for these movies would be near impossible, right? Another main <laughs> another main character in Heretics of Dune is Duncan Idaho, except he's like twelve, um, and you know based on like other weird stuff. But like you can't, you could have like Jason Momoa be Duncan Idaho in like every book or every movie that represents a book up to this one, and then you can't really because you can't like DH him enough, right? Like maybe you can adapt it so that he's like you know like. Old, but like you know, and like the actors will just constantly change, right? Like Timothy Chalamet could not be Paul in Dune Messiah. He could maybe be Leto too in God Emperor of Dune, which is like he could be his son. You know, four books down the line, right? Like it's just like because there's just so much time. There's like fifteen hundred years between this book and the previous book, and it's just like you know. Um, also gets way too like you, you cannot do the judicious cutting. I don't think in the later books that you did that they didn't do, um, and have anything make sense. Um, uh, but you know it's an interesting series. I am happy I read Heretics. Um, I will move on to Chapter House at some point in the future. But kind of in that vein, it's like this is this this is enough Frank Herbert for a while. I need to read something else. <laughs> um, that's fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, I reread Foundation recently, uh, which was great. I mean, Foundation was his, is historically my favorite novel um, because I wanted to watch the Apple Plus TV show, which is like, and it's crazy to think in these terms. Foundation beat the Lord of the Rings um, at like the Hugo Awards that year for like best trilogy or whatever. Um because it was also released with the trilogy. It's Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and then Second Foundation, you know, back to back to back, basically. Um, but it has never, there's never been, like, a film or TV adaptation. Um, and it's cra it's crazy because, like, Lord of the Rings is, like, so important, it feels like, to just all of this stuff. It's the follow right? of, like, all Every of modern fantasy. Yeah, right? Like, yeah, basically. Um, and Foundation is kind of in the same place that lord of the rings should be for a you know uh for like a sci-fi series right um but it just never quite actualized to that i think partially because one of the things about foundation is that it is very um i don't want to say like an anthology because it's not but it also sort of is right in the book foundation there are a, it's, it's almost a number of short stories right you know where there are a couple of different protagonists because it takes place over the course of like 300 years or whatever um and uh and in two of the stories it is the same person so there's sal vorharden who's like the greatest fucking character of all time and he has all these like you know, he has all of these quotes that are just very quotable little, you know, one of the things he says is I've never let my, my sense of morals prevent me from doing what's right. Uh, or, you know, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent, just like little things like that, that are just fun. <laughs> but, um, he, he's in two of them, but for the most part, right? Like every new, it, it is the story of the foundation, this group, right? Um, over the course of a thousand years, all of the books take place over, over the course of a thousand years. And so, um, it isn't rooted in singular characters doing singular things. And I think that's, what's made it hard to be like a TV show or a movie. Um, but then I saw that people didn't like Foundation on Apple TV, and it hurt me too much to know whether or not they're right or wrong. So I haven't watched it, and I don't know. Maybe we'll get there. <laughs> I just Fair like enough. I don't want to be. I just don't want to be disappointed in this thing. 
not all you can do if it's bad. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess I like uh, I liked Ted Lasso and I liked Greyhound, which are both Apple Plus things. But Apple Plus is just such a different beast, you know. Like nobody talks about it outside of Ted Lasso. Everybody talks about Ted Lasso, obviously, um, compared to like the popular Netflix show of the day, right? Whether that's like live action Bebop or Squid Game or whatever, it just feels like there's always this constant rotation of. I have or heard even HBO shows are also like this, right? I've heard very mixed things about Bebop. I've heard he's. I've also heard incredibly mixed things about it. Yeah, um, I, I keep seeing people take that. There's one screenshot of a guy in a very in a fisheye lens, but he he comes forward and his eyes are all buggy. Do you see that screenshot everywhere? Yes, apparently that is also like so. That's Ed. This is the one where they put the WB logo on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that is Ed, and apparently him showing up is like a a like end of season like you know like hook for season two. Um, okay. Which is interesting because Ed is a uh, Ed's a Ed's a Ed's a one of the main characters in the in the in the anime series, which I have also not watched a completion yet. Um, is, I have also is. not watched it. I have seen clips. I've seen a lot of clips, right? Like, because isn't it in Cowboy Bebop where the main character is in a in a convenience store, he like stops two robbers or something? With the is that headphones. Cowboy Bebop or is that Trigun? Um, with the yeah, with the headphones. headphones. That's, Cowboy that's Cowboy Bebop, Bebop right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've I, like I've seen that. I've seen a couple of different, you know, just like the famous things, but I've never actually watched the the show from end to end. Apparently, they recreate that scene in the live action, and the the people that I have listened to say it is not a good rec- like it is a is a not a good recreation of of that uh, of that scene. But you know, um, who knows? Um, uh, I have not. The only other big thing that I think I could comment on. Oh, we both watched that um, the freaking forty minute. Um, oh, the uh, Fast Pass documentary. I loved that. I did too. It was two hours. Wait, forty minutes? Oh no, 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 it was two hours. No, no. The yeah. he has a bunch of he has a bunch of video. I have been watching slowly through defunct land videos um, over the past week because because of that. Like I saw that suggested, and I was like, maybe I'll get back to that. And then you tweeted, and I was like, okay, I gotta watch this. Um, I dove into Honestly, it was I that was nuts. I was it was a roller coaster. The thing I tweeted was that it was crazy because there was a plot twist, right? Yeah. And the plot twist was he he sets up this simulation, he's talking about this simulated data, right? And then he reveals that the simulated data is just using the regu- the actual data, you know, that it is not a fantasy, that he basically recreated a theme park one to one to to chart this stuff right and that just hit me like a ton of bricks i don't know why it's just like for some reason i was it was incredibly gripping (laughs) yeah no i agree um and like it it is a very interesting exploration of like math right like it's a a lot of math and like when like you know optimization hits kind of like commercial realities right like it's it's uh it's interesting yeah i'll put a link in the funny thing the funny thing about that for me, I was thinking of it in, in game design terms, right? Like the thing that uh, it was kind of triggering for me was thinking about kind of like over-designed game designery sort of solutions to certain problems, right? Um, and this is something that people talk about in game design all the time, right? You know, where the there is a problem in a game you know, there's something that's causing frustration for players or whatever. And so designers design a whole system, you know, a whole systemic apparatus to fix that thing. But it has all these knock on, you know, it has all these million kind of like knock on effects. Right. Um, <clears throat> any big game has plenty of these. Right. Where, you know, 
an item is introduced in League of Legends because AD assassins are having a hard time killing their killing their targets, right? But then that it turns out that item is actually really good on bruisers in the top lane. So all of a sudden tanks are now out of the meta because the bruisers just go top lane and farm the tanks for free kill, you know, like all of this kind of stuff, right? Where, you know, you there's a problem, you design an intricate solution to sort of slot into the, you know, 3D Lego piece you know gap of the problem um and it and it has all these other sorts of uh other sorts of effects and it felt and it felt like i was watching people talk about like you know uh a video games metagame right where the fast pass system creates all of these rules that if you are good at the game you can memorize and learn and you can make the most of it and you can you know take full advantage of right as if you are a top end mythic raider or a challenger league of legends player or a you know a legend um hearthstone player something like that right uh but that the the rules are actually coming at the cost of a casual you know just somebody attending oh i'm yeah. disneyland i, I want to go to disneyland and ride space mountain like that kind of stuff yeah it's kind of a classic example of like 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 it's it's not specifically that like it's like the the over designing point i think like hits it right which is that like it's not that they it, – it's that you you see a problem and instead of trying to like solve it holistically, I guess, I guess the right way to put it, you are designing an extra lever to specifically tweak the problem that you see. And the acclim, ac, accumulation of levers lets like the kind of the dedicated pull them in ways that they can like extract maximum value out of it rather than kind yeah. of – which, which uh, you know, does, like you know, the basic fast pass system as – Described originally, which is like you hit a button and you get a pass to come back for later. Hard to game particularly, right? Like there are little things, but it's not like it is minor in the grand scheme of things. Um, and they're only for the very popular rides, right? Like that's a hard system to game and a hard thing to like pull levers around, right? Um, and then like for various and sundry reasons, they keep adding mechanics to it, some of which are flatly commercial and some of which are just kind of like attempting to solve problems. Creates enough complexity that you know power power users can get a lot of value out of it, and casuals cannot. Um, yeah, the game design term for this is overhead, right? I really loved learning this term, which I think I learned when I was at Square Enix. But is the idea that um, it is the sum of knowledge that a player needs to understand in order to participate in whatever the you know like whatever the thing is, and the idea being that overhead is a real problem, right? Especially like for a game like League of Legends now. If I am a new player coming into League of Legends and there's a hundred and what two hundred probably at this point, right? Like different champions, and I need to memorize all of those champions' move sets so I understand how to counter, you know, like counteract a blitz hook or whatever. That represents like a real toll on a player that makes it hard for them to just play the game. Um, but it also represents a mastery curve that like a someone who wants to get good at the game can master the game just by gaining knowledge of it, right? You know, something that I've talked about when it comes to Mythic Plus and World of Warcraft, right? Like, that's, to me, that is a knowledge curve. I understand the dungeons more so than I pump in the numbers, right? And the numbers are important, but really what matters, and the thing that got me, you know, timed 20s in absolutely everything, was a deep and intricate understanding of, of the dungeon such that I could sit here and recite, you know, like pull by pull. This is what Halls of Atonement looks like. This is what the other side looks like. That that is overhead, right? Um, 
And I think that that's what FastPass is. FastPass created a ton of overhead and it allowed the power users to express mastery over that system. Um, uh, and at the same time, it sort of in a, in it, it's a little it's a little interesting because it's sort of an opportunity cost. It's like a it's like a vacuum, right? The existence of the power users trickles down to create problems for casual users, even if the system itself is you know not all that hard to right. comprehend. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's also kind of just like I think part of the problem too is like imagine if like League of Legends, like you went to play the game and like like this is, this is I think I think it's actually better associated with Dota. Right, like in Dota, there's a secret item shop, right? And like, I know the first time I played it, I didn't even know that fucking shop existed, right? Like, and that's kind of like the fast pass problem. It's like you need to know that you can get, like, get your passes 60 days ahead of time if you stay on property. And that's not a thing that's like immediately obvious unless, like, you know, you've done your research yet. And that you must get, if you have the ability, you must get them 60 days ahead of time in order the, to guarantee yeah, the, them. Say, the, the 60 days in advance thing, I literally I laughed out loud and I said, pay to win i said out loud i was like that's pay to win right like you pay disney to stay on their property to get you know access yeah. to like the fast pass or whatever um but honestly the, the maybe the most arresting part of that documentary or, or i guess i would call it a documentary that video essay was the the part where he shows all of these disney youtubers i guess in an ecosystem i didn't even know about right, right? like disney youtubers um talking about how to you know that they had all made these videos about get, making the most out of fast pass which i was like whoa yeah no i mean and like there's what was the other aspect of this that like that that, that jumped out at me um yeah i'm sorry i i, I lost my train of thought um yeah I, the, the, all of this stuff with the theme parks is really interesting because like i've obviously been to a lot of theme parks over the course of my life right like i've been to hershey park six flags great adventure in new jersey um uh god what's the one in kennywood is the one in pittsburgh um and you know so that, like going to amusement parks is an understandable like I, I i get that even if i've never actually been to disneyland um but uh but it's just fascinating to kind of like submerge into this world where like that matters a lot for some people in the same way that i have mastery over these like mythic plus dungeons i'm sure someone could tell me all about you know oh well if you go to disneyland you know this thing is next to that thing so you want to go there and you want to go around here at lunch because it's right next to the food court you know like you can really like optimize that stuff if you try hard enough at it right and and part of the problem is that there's also like like a lot of casuals right like the, like the, the park is like like League of Legends, in some ways, is built for the hardcore players, right? Like, True. Um, Disneyland is built for casuals, right? Like, um, and this, this is this is what I was trying to think of. Like, back in June, I was in Orlando for a concert. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll check out Disney World. And like, I checked it like a week before, and it was completely sold out, right? Like, you know, like I'm like, of course, like you know, after thinking about it, of course it would be, right? Like, there's limited quantity because of because of the pandemic or whatever. Um, but like, you know, it's like, of course, you know, there there are people, there are diehard fans that are like willing to like, you know, optimize all this. Of course, everything's gonna like. I couldn't even get into the park, much less like you know, do anything with FastPass. So, yeah, uh, I actually think about that um, pretty commonly because something that is interesting 
is those people also maybe have season passes. Like, I know a lot of people who have season passes to Disney Disneyland, which is a very common thing in Los Angeles, right? Because right? Disneyland close is, that's where, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you you know, you only have to go, like, two or three times in order to Get quote, value. Quote, make your money, yeah, like, make your money back on the on the annual pass. But I actually think that in, in specific terms, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the casual you know, like the casual audience that is bankrolling essentially the power players, right? Because you have to imagine the power players are the people who are going to bring food in. You know, they're going to know how to sneak, you know, or or know where the best deals are, right? To get oh, I you can get a, you can get two pretzels here and a pizza and a slice of pizza for eight dollars because there's a special bundle, but only at this one kiosk or something like that, right? That or like leave the park for lunch and come back later or like another day, right? Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, you know, yeah, you only say half the day or you eat lunch beforehand at one of the whatever things, right? Like all of that, right? But if you're a casual, you know, if you're a casual person, yeah, you're staying in a, a Disney hotel, right? You are doing for what you know like you are you are hungry? Oh, I'm just going to walk over to this hot dog stand. Well, I don't care what the hot dog costs. I'm on fucking vacation, right? right? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, the only other thing I thought we could talk about briefly, I guess, is we only have a couple of minutes left, is uh, did you look at your Spotify wrapped? Yeah, I did look at my Spotify. I'm happy to talk about my Spotify wrapped, actually. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, wait. I, you can only get it on your phone. Fuck. I was going to look at it. But I don't yeah. actually, I can't actually see it. So the only thing I think that's particularly notable about my Spotify Wrapped is my number two artist was Bo Burnham, and my number four artist was Ben Platt. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, because of Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, so other reasons too. Um, but uh, yeah, but but that's part of it. Yes. Um, so you know. Uh, oh, I oh good. I actually can't see this because I. You screenshot. Put it in a, I put it in a, uh, a Discord channel. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was honestly a little disappointed in my rap, which was pretty funny. But um, so uh, my number two artist was also Bo Burnham, actually. Um, Who was your number one? Which actually makes a lot of sense. My number one was a guy called Blockhead. Okay. My, my- um, who didn't honestly, I think he did do something new this year, which is maybe why I was listening. Um, I mean, like mine was churches. Um, that's the, like I listened to the shit out of their album. I also didn't have like compared to people I've I've, I've looked at. Like, what's what's your minutes played? What does it does it say? It's like it's if you're looking at the graphic, it's the one the lower. It's at the bottom on the lower left. Like total. You mi- see the minutes played for? Yeah, huh? That's total minutes. I played. guess I. I did not include that graphic in this Discord chat that I'm looking at. Okay. Um, I see that I streamed 2,000 minutes of Blockhead. Okay. Uh, yeah. For, for comparison, my total stream time was like 5,600. So, you know, it's like I, I did not listen to a ton of music this year, uh, which is fine. But, you know, that is what it is. Okay. Yeah. So Blockhead released an album this year is why. I was listening okay. to a lot of Blockhead. And the funny thing is actually the song that I was listening to from Blockhead was from his 2019 album Bubble Bath, um, which has a song on it called Moist Ghost. Um, and that song – uh, I, I just like that song a lot, but, uh, because I was listening to his new stuff and I thought it was fine, but it mostly just made me want to listen to his old stuff. I just put moist ghost back on a couple of playlists and I was just like listening to it a lot though. My number one song for the year, it, which is a little, uh, depressing in to maybe in my own head, um, is called mutant jazz. But you remember how I talked about the, the meta 
for me for for Spotify is every week I listen to my Discover Weekly kind of top yep. to bottom, and um, any song that I like a lot, I tend to pick off of that and I put onto a playlist, and then I try and keep that playlist at about a minute or an hour and twenty minutes because that's the that's the size of what used to be a burned CD. Right, you right. Burn a CD for eighty minutes, and that just feels like that's like a good length for a, a playlist, right? If it gets too long, it just sort of becomes mush in my head um mutant jazz was one of the first songs that i put onto that playlist and i think the reason it's number one is because when i went to listen to that playlist you know you double click the playlist it plays the first song i think it's just mutant jazz every time Mm -hmm. you know and then you just listen to it through through and you know mutant jazz is off that playlist at this point but yeah I mean, that's the world we live in, right? Yeah. For, for comparison, my number one song is Asking for a Friend, which is off of that Church's album. Um, and But my most listened to genre is Future Funk, which Church's is not Future Funk. But, like, I listen to a lot of a lot of different Future Funk songs by a lot of different – like, um, Desired and Vantage are two Future Funk artists, and they are my three and five, uh, respectively. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But I listen to a lot of I, – I, like – my summer playlist is like all future funk um, just because okay. like it's like because it's got like weird like radio aesthetics, right? Like it reminds me of like going to the beach and listening to like old music on the radio and like future funk is like mild radio aesthetics plus like 80 like like techno remixes of 80s Japanese city pop. So it's got like the same kind of feeling to me. So I like love listening to that in the summer. So it ends up being high on my list always. And like I don't have a ton of um, genre consistency outside of that. So. Yeah, I mean, my, my genres are pretty consistent. I have my number one genre is trip hop, um, which is like very DJ focused, right? Like kind of you'd think of that as like chill music. A lot of it is samples, mm-hmm. um, you know, like DJs making songs out of sampling. That's what Blackhead does, right? Um, then video game music, then down tempo, classic rock, and new jazz. I don't know what that's about, but I, I feel like, you know, trip hop, down tempo, and new jazz all kind of create this unit of just sort of like laid back chill electronic music that tends to be uh the the sort of thing that i'm listening to you know like week in and week out but the thing that's interesting about that is i feel like i i go through a million different artists because what i'm what i'm going off of is the discover weekly which is just showing me individual songs yeah yeah and it's pretty rare for me like even though mutant jazz was my top song i don't think i've listened to anything else from that guy whoever it is just because i found that song in as an individual right Yeah, yeah no that makes sense that makes sense all right, well, we are over time and we got places to be. So I'm going to say, um, if you'd like to email us about any of the things you, you we talked about on this podcast, whether it's Mitch Too Loaded or uh, Final Fantasy fourteen or Mutant Jazz, you can email us at podcast.com or um, at gmail.com. Email us your questions for the great AMA special in two weeks. Um, uh, uh, what else? Uh, rate, review us on iTunes. Do all the stuff that we tell you there'll be links in the description but you have anything you want to promote uh so tomorrow i am doing a secret stream we're doing a buddy plays hooky stream on my lunch for hearthstone because the new hearthstone update comes out tomorrow so i will be jamming hearthstone decks for an hour or two uh at 11 a.m pacific and 2 p.m eastern eastern um otherwise i don't have anything else insane going on right now all right so yeah Well, in that case, uh, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.